Maybe you heard this week about fires in France. There were forest fires that broke out and uh, spread across a certain region. And 1,500 acres at this point have been burned up. And at one point there were almost 1,000 firefighters arranged to fight this fire. We know from even our next door neighbor province, BC, that forest fires are fierce and they are very powerful. They burn and they consume everything in their path. This is a fitting illustration for the theme of this chapter, which really is God's burning anger. See, in the rest of the Bible, God is like a consuming fire. That is his anger, his grief against sin burns and it will consume. This is the main theme of this chapter. The burning anger of God, even against his own people for their sins. The first point I want to look at here is just that, God's burning anger. We see this in verse 1. Look with me at verse 1. It says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. We know the previous chapter, Jericho fell. God gave Israel power to conquer this city. He felled the walls as they believed him and trusted in his word, and they were commanded to devote everything in that city to destruction. That is, everything was killed or burned with fire, except those things God had wanted to bring into his own treasury, the treasury of the Lord. Look back at chapter 6, 18, it said, But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall, be, they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. This was a complete destruction that God commanded, save for those things that were devoted to him. Certain things were devoted to destruction. Certain things were devoted to the Lord. And they were not to take these devoted things for themselves. Yet we see here, God's anger was burning against the people because it says they broke faith in regard to the devoted things. This one man, Achan, took some of the devoted things and so the anger of the Lord burned against the people. I want you just to notice a few things about the sin committed here. Notice, first of all, the collective responsibility and effect of this sin. It says in verse 1 that Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Yet we know this was simply one man out of all the people of Israel who took some of the devoted things. And yet God, seeing that there was a responsibility in this whole nation to not take the devoted things, his anger burns against all of the people of Israel. He sees it as the whole community's sin. There is a collective responsibility in effect of this sin. That's perhaps a difficult thought for us as individualists in our society. But the Bible is not individualistic. We will see even in the church, there's a collective responsibility to deal with sin. Notice also the objects of the sin, those devoted things. We will learn later specifically it was a cloak from Shinar, a beautiful cloak that Achan saw and he took, and also shekels of silver and a bar of gold. And so these were things that were either devoted to destruction or to be given to the Lord completely. See the subject of the sin, this man Achan. 
one man out of one household, one clan, one tribe of Israel. He would have looked like any other Israelite, and yet he committed this sin. And so we see God's burning anger against the people of Israel. God is grieved. God is awakened to wrath by this sin found among his people. We see this throughout the Bible, that God's wrath is kindled against all sin. Psalm 5 says he hates all evildoers. Even when sin is found among his people, there is a wrath and anger of God against his people. If you look back at the book of Exodus, for instance, Exodus 32.10, after the people of Israel made a golden calf. It says God was angry. 32 verse 10, Now therefore let me alone, he says to Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. His anger was about to burn hot and consume the people. He says in the book of Amos, A very interesting statement after pronouncing judgment on the rest of the nations, he hones in on Israel and Judah. And he says in Amos 3, verse 1 and 2, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. There's something even of a special wrath, a special anger. You know, if you are in a relationship with someone, in a covenant relationship, and they break that relationship, how much more frustrating, how much more angering is that? God had known only them of all the families of the earth. Therefore, he would punish them for all their iniquities. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we see this is really the same in the church. God says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Then a very frightening passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 can say this, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those who know something about God, those who even come amongst the community of faith and yet reject God, trample him underfoot, they awaken a fearful wrath of God. Jonathan Edwards in Enfield, Connecticut, July 8th, 1741, preached a message that would become famous or infamous depending on your perspective. But it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This sermon detailed the fierce wrath of God that falls upon those who reject him in this life. He used the text in Deuteronomy 32 that says, in due time their foot shall slip. And he spoke of how only the sheer sovereign will of God keeps sinners from immediately sinking down into hell. He gave many frightening metaphors. You think of how you can go out on a sheet of ice And at any moment, you could slip and fall. 
That is what it is like to be a sinner who has not taken refuge in Christ. That at any moment you might slip and fall into eternal destruction. Talked about how people who are still yet in their sins are like hateful insects in in the hand of someone and, and he's ready to throw it into the fire. The only thing holding you up is the sheer pleasure of God. And at a time when he chooses, he can bring his judgment, his fierce fierce wrath upon you. Well, people, upon hearing this sermon, were crying and screaming out in the building. They were crying out things like, Oh, I am going to hell. What shall I do to be saved? At some point, Edwards even had to stop the message because people were crying out so much. But then after the sermon, there were ministers there and they went to those people and they counseled them and they shared the good news, the gospel grace of God with them. And many found comfort and peace that night. You see, the subject of the wrath of God ought to be more in our understanding We ought to get this truth deep in our hearts of the burning anger of God. Something we don't hear spoken on much. In fact, it's something that I think most Christians today don't even want to think about. The wrath of God. But this is a truth of scripture. And we need it in order to be revived and awakened. If we're going to see the magnitude of God's mercy... We must first see the fierceness of his wrath and the heinousness of our sin. A.W. Pink said, We should frequently meditate on God's wrath so that, one, our hearts may be affected by God's detestation of sin. Second, to produce a true fear of God in our souls. And third, to draw out our souls in fervent praise for having been delivered from the wrath to come. So this is a worthy subject for us to think upon from this text. The wrath of God, the burning anger of God. Moving on, we see a second point in this passage, which is the signal of God's burning anger. We see this in verses 2 and following. God didn't reveal the sin of Israel to them at this point, directly. We, as readers of this chapter, have some information that the rest of the people don't have as we go on in the story. We know that God is angry at Israel because of Achan's sin. But we see that Joshua and the rest of Israel didn't know this at this point. God chooses to reveal his displeasure through another means. That is, that his power left them at the battle of Ai. And they were chased away by those people. Though they were few. Though they were courageous and they thought only 3,000 men we can go up. We can defeat these people. No, they, they chased them back. And we see in verse 4 at the end there that the hearts of the people melted and became as water. That's the same reaction that some of the Canaanites had before in Joshua 2.11, 5 verse 1. We see that the people were discouraged and afraid. They were confused. Joshua himself wasn't sure what was going on here. We know that God had promised them beforehand victory. If you look at Joshua chapter 1 verse 5, he had said to Joshua, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. But here, God seems to have abandoned the people for a moment. And it was to draw them to himself. That he might reveal the fact that he was angry against them. The defeat was a result of God's burning anger. It was a sign of his wrath against them. We see Joshua and the elders here reacting to this defeat in verses 6 to 9 
They tear their clothes. They fall to the earth on their faces before the ark of the Lord. They put dust on their heads. And Joshua prays. They, they show their grief that God would have left them. And their confusion and they're seeking the Lord. And Joshua is questioning God. You see his question there in verse 7. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. And maybe right away that sounds something to you like something you've heard before is that Israelites came out of Egypt. Sometimes they would grumble, they would complain. Oh, would that we had died in Egypt or that we went back there so that we could have all the food that we enjoyed back in Egypt. God has brought us out here to destroy us and we have no water, we have no food. Now all that we have is manna. Oh, we're sick of the quail. You know, there's all this grumbling and complaining of the people of Israel. But I think this is not quite Joshua's heart here. He's simply confused. Why did God bring them over the Jordan? Why did God bring them in, into this land just to give them into the hands of their enemies? He's trying to understand the promise of God and his present reality. They don't seem to accord with one another. And so this is his question. God, why, why have you brought us over the Jordan at all? We see his defense in verse 8. Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? What else could he say? What other conclusion can he come to when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? Why have you brought us in here just to destroy us? That's what it seems like here, Lord. I'm only bringing to you what is presently occurring. Then we see his fear in verse 9. It says, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? You see that he was afraid now that all of the Canaanites would gain courage seeing that Israel had been defeated here once. They would all come. They would cut off the name of Israel from the earth. And then God's great name, God's glory, God's reputation would be injured. There, there would be the reproach of the nations upon them. Again, which God had rolled away at the end of chapter 5. What, what will you do, Lord, for your great name? We see this is his most powerful and greatest argument before the Lord. This is really the greatest argument we can bring before God in prayer. What about your great name, Lord? Because God does everything for the greatness of his name, that his own glory would be magnified. And this here does not seem to bring you glory, Lord. So what will you do for your great name? We see that God does answer. And we should be encouraged by this, that when we're confused with life's circumstances, we ought to come to God. We ought to bring our questions. We ought to seek him and look for an answer from him. God does reply. But Joshua might have assumed that this was simply a problem with God. That God had some reason within himself. That he was not with them in this battle. But God's reply shows that it wasn't a problem with God. It was a problem with them. God says, no, look to yourself. He says twice, get up. Get up, stop seeking me in this way. He says this was not his problem, but rather it was Israel's sin. Verse 10, he says, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied 
and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So we see what the real problem is here. There was sin in the camp. There was transgression. Sin, that word there, means a kind of wrongdoing and offense against God. Transgression is a step over a boundary that God has set up. Some of you guys who hunt, you know what a WMU is. You have to shoot within that area, right? That region. If you go out of it, that is a transgression. And you can be penalized for it. I heard of someone who shot over the BC border by accident once. And that was a great penalty that they had to pay. God's penalties are worse because these are trespasses. These are transgressions against an eternal God. And in this specific instance, God had made his command very clear. He had spoken to them about this before in passages like Deuteronomy 13, 17 to 18, where they were not to take of the devoted things. Joshua 6, 18, again, Joshua reminded them they were not to take these devoted things for themselves. But rather we see they sinned, they transgressed the covenant. They took of the devoted things. They stole, they lied, they put them among their own belongings. And we see the effect of this. This is why they were losing in battle. God would not be with them until they removed the devoted thing. God's anger showed up in the fact that he was not present to give them victory. To help them triumph over their enemies. Until the point where they got rid of this thing. God would no longer be with them. And they even became themselves devoted to destruction, it says in verse 12. Because they took of those devoted things. If you try to hold on to the cursed things, you become cursed. And so, they were to let go of these things. And we see God's direction there, beginning in verse 13. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans and so on and so, so forth until they found the man Verse 15, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. This was an outrageous thing, an insane thing, a foolish thing that this man had done. And he was going to get what he deserved for taking of these devoted things. He himself was to be devoted to destruction, stoned and burned together with everything that he had. It was a fitting punishment for this particular transgression. Now, here at this point, I want to stop and ask some hard questions for ourselves. This passage really confronts us in a unique way. And it leads us to ask some things about ourselves. The first thing would be, do we see evidence that God is among us, powerfully helping us and giving us victory in our mission? I think this is something we have to ask ourselves. Is there, is there the power of God among us? Are we a revived church? Even the whole modern church culture. Is God present? Is God there to give victory? Are we conquering in the ways that we are supposed to conquer? 
And I realize that's a difficult question because God at the same time promises that he will build the church, but he also promises that we will see trouble. There will be suffering. There there will be opposition. Jesus can even say few will be saved. The way is narrow. And so I'm not saying we have to see this building bursting with people to know that God's power is at work. But are we triumphing over sin? Are we defeating worldliness? Are we progressing in our mission? Are we advancing the gospel? Are we a revived people led by the power of God? Do we see his work among us? I think this is what the the text would have us ask ourselves. I have to be honest, Wednesday night I was praying along these lines, something like Joshua's prayer. Why, Lord? Why are we so unrevived? And this is me, myself. I have to be honest before myself. Am I a revived person? Am I a revived pastor? Are we in this church community revived as we should be? Is the power of God on display? It was crying out to God. And then Thursday morning, I began to read this text and study it. Maybe this is the answer. What would God say to us when we cry out to him in this way? When we cry out, Lord, why did you even save us that we should be like this? Maybe what he wants to say to us is this, get up, Israel has sinned. And that leads to another question. What are the sins among us? What are the transgressions? How have we Transgress the covenant of the Lord. What things ought we have devoted to destruction? God says to put to death what is earthly in you. He says to put sin to death. He says do not love the world or the things in the world. What are the things that we should give to God? Into his treasury. That we're not giving to him. We have to ask ourselves these questions. What sins are there in our midst? God wants us to be completely devoted to him. Perhaps he won't give us his power. Until we really get serious about rooting out sin. Devoting these things to destruction. Devoting to the Lord what he wants devoted to him. These are uncomfortable questions. But I want to ask these questions. I don't know about you. I want to know the Lord. I want to see his power. I want to be revived. Don't you? Don't you want to know Christ? Don't you want to press on? Don't you want to see his glory on display in the church? This is where it starts. God points back at us and he says, Israel has sinned. Get up. Devote these things to destruction. We see in the rest of the passage the solution to God's burning anger. They go ahead, they follow God's command in the morning. And they find Achan by lot, by this winnowing process. And Joshua confronts him. And he confesses everything. And they destroy him with his family and everything that they own. He is devoted to destruction. In the very end of the passage we see that God's anger is turned away. This is the solution to the burning anger among them. They have to destroy this man with his devoted things. I want to look here at a few points here. First of all, consider the danger of confessing too late. We see here Achan's confession, and it is a true confession. I would say even a model confession. If you want to know how to confess your sins, well, look no further than this man Achan, except for the fact that it was too late. Achan should have confessed his sin 
right away when it was in his heart, when he started coveting those items. He should have gone to the Lord and asked for forgiveness and mercy and help. Or even if he had taken those things, he should have confessed, I I took some of the devoted things. Please take them away from me. Destroy them. Maybe God will have mercy on me. But he waits. He waits till God reveals him through this process until Joshua has to confront him in verse 19. So as Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So we see Achan's answer again. This is a model confession. We see that he recognizes the nature of his sin against God. He says in verse 20, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is something like the confession of David in Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When we sin, we're to recognize this is an offense. This is a sin against God. Go to him and confess it to him. Even confess it to others if need be. We see that Achan gives a full account of his sin. He says, this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. When we confess our sins, we ought to give also a full account, not leaving anything out. Sometimes we're tempted to do that. Out of our pride, we want to leave out the details. We're to confess completely to the Lord. We see that he recognizes something of the deceitfulness of sin here. He says that he saw a beautiful cloak from Shinar. You know, sin is beautiful. It's attractive to the eye. Satan makes it that way. Genesis 3, 6, the forbidden fruit was a delight for the eyes. Proverbs 5, 3 says the forbidden woman has lips that drip honey. These forbidden things, these things devoted to destruction, they're always beautiful. And this cloak, it's interesting, it comes from Shinar, which is another word for Babylon. You know, Babylon in the Old Testament becomes really a symbol for the world for the wicked world against God, what we would call in the New Testament, the world, the things of the world. We know that the world is industrious and it constantly produces more and more beautiful sins for us to partake in. It's a deceitful thing. And Achan fell for it. He fell for the love of money, which is a great snare that many people fall into. He saw these 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, coveted them. That would be something like today, $25,000. You know, if you were there in Jericho and you saw this gold and silver, which God said he wanted in his treasury, would you be tempted to take it? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That kind of greed, that kind of covetousness lays at the root of many sins. It's a deceitful thing, the deceitfulness of riches. This is what can even choke out the word of God. Jesus says in the parable of the sower, when a man goes out to sow and falls among thorns, the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of the world, they choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. The love of money. And Achan here recognizes both the the fruit sins and the root sins. He tells them exactly what he did. And he tells them the heart motivation behind it. He says, I coveted them and took them. He recognized at the root this was a desire to have things that he did not have. And that God did not give to him. But that's what led to that theft and that cover up was the covetousness in his heart, which Paul in Colossians 3, 5 says is equivalent to idolatry. It's a deifying of things. When when we desire something and we think it's going to satisfy us, we want it so bad, 
That's idolatry. We're assigning to that thing worth that only the true living God has. The fountain of living water. These are broken cisterns, but we go to them. We covet them. He pointed them to where the sinful things were so that they could get rid of them. See, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. We see in verse 22, Joshua sent messengers. They rounded the tent. Behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And so they brought these things before the people of Israel, before the Lord. We see in this a, a model confession. Completely retells all of his sins and, and tells the people where, where, where these things are so that they can deal with them, so that they can get rid of them. But this confession was all too late. As I said, Achan should have confessed this earlier. Perhaps the Lord would have had mercy upon him. But you need to also consider the danger of confessing too late, hiding your sins, secret sins. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. There is mercy to be found right now. You confess your sins to God. but you ought not to wait on that. It may be too late. Your heart may grow hardened and cold, deceived by that sin, and then you will die in your sins and be in hell forever. James 5.16 even notes the power of confessing our sins to one another. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We have to know that our sins will find us out. It says this in Numbers. Whether sooner or later, or even if only at the final judgment, but our sins will be exposed. 1 Timothy 5, 24 to 25 notes how the sins of some are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. And Jesus said in Luke 12, 1 to 3, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Achan's sin is now known around the whole world. It was exposed so also will your sins be exposed before the one with whom you have to do. It's better to confess your sins now and find God's mercy now before it's too late. Another thing I want to consider here is the danger of what we might call partway religion. Partway religion. When a person becomes a Christian, we are called to follow Christ completely, to count the cost first of following Jesus, because we need to give up our life if we're going to save it. We will lose our life if we try to keep it. And Jesus says, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his own soul? What did it profit Achan to gain this little bit of treasure that he had to hide in his tent and then to die for it? He didn't even get to wear his robe around and be proud about it. He, he didn't even get to buy anything with the silver and gold. He spent his life hiding. He deceived himself thinking that this really benefited him. But likewise, we can be deceived by sin. We think that we can hold on to, we can cling to things that God has said, put them to death. We can cling to self. We can cling to earthliness and worldliness rather than sacrificing these things on the altar. We think that we can 
keep some of our treasure for ourselves and not devote it to the Lord. But that's a partway religion. Even if it's 75% that you're giving to the Lord, that's not a religion that saves. Maybe for most people in our culture, it's a 1% religion. Tack on Jesus, say the sinner's prayer, and then you're good to go. You live completely how you want. doesn't matter. You think that you're saved. You think you're going to heaven. There will be many on that day who say, Lord, Lord. And he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. We need to lay it all down before Jesus Christ. We need to be continually spotting in our lives those things that God says, put them to death and devote to me. We, we are to give them completely up to the Lord. This kind of partway religion, when it pervades a church, certainly evokes the wrath of God. This is not the kind of church culture that God owns, that God truly comes into and works powerfully among. He gets grieved and he leaves. There is a time when Jesus removes his lampstand. When a church becomes so apostate, when it has turned from him, when it is not living for him, that he has to depart from it. And so these questions, again, maybe we're not gaining ground like we should as a church, certainly as a wider church culture. We might ask why God, but he says to us, get up. Israel has sinned. We are to ask how much that should be devoted to destruction are we actually still holding on to? How much that should be devoted to God and his work are we keeping for ourselves? What are we coveting and idolizing that God says he is going to pour his wrath upon or that needs to be given completely to him? Maybe you personally are struggling with a sin you can't overcome. God doesn't seem to be with you in the fight. You cry out to him about it. You question him. You ask him to help you. Maybe he's saying to you today, look at yourself. What are you still holding on to? What are your darling sins? What other worldliness is in your life? What are you not dealing with? Jesus calls for radical measures in dealing with sin. Plucking out of the eyes, cutting off of the hand. There's a cost. Would you rather give up your soul forever or keep it in this life? So the danger of a partway religion. The, the next thing is the danger of an undisciplined church. One reason the church, the modern church, is so abandoned by God today is that we collectively will not exercise church discipline. God's presence was restored to Israel here and the anger of the Lord was turned away when they dealt with this sin. And his anger burned against all of them. As I noted at the beginning, there is a collective effect of sin. It is like leaven that leavens the whole lump. There is a collective responsibility. When someone is walking in unrepentant sin in a congregation, it becomes the business of others. Of course, we have to deal with that with discernment and wisdom. It's a patient process. Matthew 18, 15 and following lays it out. 1 Corinthians 5 speaks of this. But we ought to be a people who devote sin to destruction in this way of church discipline. Paul even applies Old Testament death penalty language to excommunication in the New Testament. Just as Deuteronomy 13.5 can say something like, purge the evil person from among you when they would stone someone to death. 1 Corinthians 5.13 says, purge the evil person from among you when they cast him out of the visible church and the membership. Look at an example like the United Church, for instance. They're just an easy one to pick on. 
they've been drifting and apostate for many, many years. I don't know where it started. Maybe there was a laxing of the standard of church discipline. Maybe it was they weren't calling out people who committed adultery. I, I don't know what it was. But, but soon, they were allowing people openly homosexual to be members of the churches. Soon, they're putting women in pulpits. Soon, they're putting even homosexual men in pulpits. Men who are given to sexual immorality are preaching in these churches. And now we see there is even an atheist minister in the United Church of Canada. Someone who does not even believe in God. Well, that's an easy example. But we do it as well in our churches, don't we? We don't want to rebuke sin when we see it. We allow things to continue. We allow addictions to continue. We allow ourselves to live mostly for the world or partly for the world. We're not called out. We don't confront a love of money or gluttony or covetousness when we see it. But listen to Paul in Ephesians 5, verse 5. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You see what Paul is saying there? If you are characterized by this sin, if you are walking in this kind of sin, you are not a partaker of the kingdom of Christ. See, you're either dead in sin or you're dead to sin through Christ Jesus. And we need to get that right, that we would not deceive ourselves and the wrath of God, which is coming upon the rest of the world, come upon us as well. God is grieved by sin. Paul continues there in that passage. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And so there is a necessity for the church to be dealing with sin. Otherwise, we grieve God. And his wrath abides upon the church that does not devote these things to destruction. We have to get that message today. It's what God would say to us. But friends, something he would also say to us is that we can't help ourselves. That we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That God's wrath indeed abides on all of us by nature. We are sons of disobedience. We're dead in sin. We are children of wrath. Following after these things. The world. The, the, the sins of the world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Inheritors of God's wrath. Apart from the work of Jesus Christ. And really the solution is to let Christ shine upon us. Paul continues in Ephesians 5, verse 14. He says, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Are you willing to have your sins exposed and dealt with? Are you willing to confess them before it's too late? Then come to Jesus Christ. He's the light He's the light of the world. Awake, arise from your sleep, get up from the dead, let him shine on you. He comes to expose the darkness in the world. 
And anyone who would trust in him comes into the light so that his deeds may be exposed. And we might confess and we might find mercy because this is the thing Jesus himself extinguishes the wrath of God on our behalf. If you only trust in him, his work is sufficient. In a strange way, he resembles Achan because this one man died for all. Jesus came, he bore our sins, he was numbered among the transgressors, dying between two covetous thieves because he was dying in our place for our sins, bearing the wrath of God in our place. And he extinguishes it so that God can give us instead his love, his grace, his mercy, which he has chosen us in Christ to lavish upon us. If you only trust in Jesus Christ, come to him truly. Come to the end of yourself, willing to confess your sin, willing to come to Jesus, willing to lay everything on the altar, and you trust in his work alone to save you. He is the light of the world. And John 8, 12 says, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life when Christ shines upon you you begin to shine with that very light of Jesus Christ that would be my prayer for all of you that you would come out into the light and you would have Christ shine upon you and you would live in that light and friends we also as Christians as believers those who have been born again those who have followed Jesus Christ we're to continually walk in that light as 1 John even says, confessing our sins, knowing he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have an advocate in heaven. He writes those things so that we may not sin. We're to avoid sin. We're to devote it to destruction. We're to put it to death. We're to give our all to Jesus Christ. But when we sin, we're to come confessing, broken, contrite before the Lord to receive again his wonderful mercy and grace. May the Lord bless his word. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for such a love that we should be called children of God, children of light, brought out of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. Lord, we pray and ask that you would help us, Lord, to see our sin. Lord, what are those things we're holding on to, taking for ourselves? God, cleanse us from these things. God, we pray that you would just help us daily to walk by your spirit, walk in the light as you yourself are light. Lord, and we love you for that. So righteous, so holy a God. And we want to be holy. God, we pray in Jesus' name.